I want to take just a moment to let you know that uh, earlier uh, in June, Judy and I celebrated 40 years of marriage together. Um, she really is um, the love of my life. She was a prayer partner assigned by God to me at a time when my heart was searching. And out of that relationship of prayer came uh, the permission to begin dating uh, back in 1977. Uh, and uh, we are so grateful for the journey that we've been on. And we had planned in an almost uh, wonder if it'll ever happen kind of way to make a pilgrimage to Scotland, where some of my ancestry is, and to Switzerland, where some of her ancestry is. And this is a summer when God has allowed us to make that trip. And so um, we are um, grateful for your prayers, but we'll be gone for most of July. You'll not be far from our hearts. Well, not too far. Uh, and as a, you know, the Gospel of John declares that from his hand we have all received grace upon grace. In order to complete our travel, we're taking the high-speed rail from Geneva back to Paris, and we're going to have a day or two there at the end of our trip. And the end of our time in Switzerland happens to coincide providentially uh, with arriving in Paris on the day before the final stage of the 2019 Tour de France. Um, so watch for me on the Champs-Élysées when you watch that final stage. Um, it's not really a bucket list item of mine, but I am so grateful. Um, so grateful. We all must live our lives gratefully. And we'll talk about that in just a moment if you'll pray with me. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts together be acceptable in your sight. Through Christ Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Traveling does bring a certain kind of focus to a family or to a community, making a journey or a pilgrimage together. We leave the comfortable confines of the things we are used to, the familiar faces, the familiar routines. The light switches were always in the same place in a room, and when you go to a new place, you reach for the light switch and you miss because it's in a different place in the room where you're staying. Everything is different. The rhythms are off. You have to deal with the unexpected in <clears throat> travel arrangements. There are all kinds of things that... These are the reasons we pray for one another to have traveling mercies as we make our journeys through the world. And I'm bringing all of this up because there's a very powerful, uh, very powerful way that we begin today's scripture passage from the Gospel of Luke. When the time came for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face toward Jerusalem. Now, Jesus had been in the regions of Galilee up in the north. He was making his way clear down into the southern regions down and around Jerusalem. It was necessary, even though he had a highly successful ministry in Galilee, and I mean they had nailed Galilee, they had it cold. They were doing it exceptionally well. The multitudes were gathering, coming to see Jesus. But as we said last week, he now must go to see the ones that can't get there on their own. More to the point, he is setting out to fulfill what I believe was Jesus' understanding of the role of Messiah taken from the songs of the suffering servant in Isaiah. Isaiah came before God 
and was saying, you know, you, you asked me to speak to the people and I have been an utter failure at it. I haven't done well. Nobody's responding. Israel is no better off today than at the start of my ministry. And instead of God saying, you're right, Isaiah, give up. Don't, don't do any more. What Isaiah heard the Lord say was, you know, it's too small a thing that I should appoint you to be a savior of Israel only. That's, that's too small. Your eyes are fixed on too small a prize. For I have set you to be a light to the nations. And so, as Luke is telling us the story about Jesus, he always has in the back of his mind, both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, he always has in the back of his mind the fact that salvation comes through Jesus, but it goes first to Jerusalem and then to all of Judea and then to all of Israel and then to the nations of the world. This Gospel message isn't just for the homeboys. It's for everyone. And in order to fulfill all that the Scriptures require, Jesus has to make His way to Jerusalem. Now, parked between Galilee and Jerusalem is a region called Samaria. When the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom 700 years before Jesus, instead of deporting people as the Babylonians would later, they... they they, they thought that they would get rid of the locals by a sort of forced breeding uh, program. To get rid of the pure blood of the Jews, they began to go in and mingle with the people who were in that region. And the, the half-bloods that came out were referred to as Samaritans. They had a very Jewish sensibility. In fact, they accepted the first five books of the Torah. They were people who followed the law of Moses diligently, but they were not pure in their blood, so they were looked upon with scorn by some. Neither did they acknowledge Jerusalem as the capital city. They did not acknowledge the Davidic kingdom. For them, Moses was the beginning and the end of their faith. And so Mount Horeb was the place where the law was given. Mount Horeb is the place that should be venerated, not Jerusalem, not the holy city, and not the holy mountain, Zion. So anytime a Jew came through the region of Samarita, uh, Samaria, the Samaritans, in an almost reflexive, defensive posture, like, I'm going to get you before you get me, would scorn the Jews in return and say, I will have nothing to do with you because you are headed towards Jerusalem. Are you with me on this? Because one of the first things Jesus does with his journey is walk the disciples and his followers right into the Samaritan region and right up to the edge of a village. And he turns to the disciples and said, okay, it's getting late. We've had a good day today. All right, go into the village. Find us a place to stay. And off they went. And back they came. Knocked on every door in the village. The doors were slammed in their face. One after the next, after the next, after the next. I don't even want to hear what you have to say. You're on your way to Jerusalem. We don't want your stuff here. And so they came back to Jesus. And they said, they got nothing. And then one of the, the disciples, in a fit of absolute pure honesty and humility and humanness, says, Lord, 
Would you like us to call down fire upon them? And some manuscripts actually add the words, like the prophet Elijah did. Now, these guys weren't just reflexively reacting. They were quoting scripture. There is scripture, Lord, that says when we're treated like this, we have every right, no, the responsibility to incinerate these people and get rid of them. These people want nothing to do with you. Let's burn them up. And Jesus said, no. No, I understand the sentiment. I really do. But I told you that the Son of Man must suffer. And the Son of Man must be given over. And the Son of Man must die for the forgiveness of sins and on the third day be raised again. And we are not here on a retribution project. We are here on a redemption project. And brothers and sisters, that message has never changed. It is still the community standard. I don't care how you're mistreated, what they say about you, who overlooks you or who takes you and puts you in their sights. Our response is always one of love. Jesus said, I have not come to destroy, but I have come to love. Pastor Jerry is going to get to walk with you through all the definitions of, all right, well, I'll try to be more loving, but who am I supposed to love? Jerry's going to get to unpack all of that. Who is my neighbor stuff? But for right now, we're just trying to hang on to the boundaries of a basic community life. For to live together in community means that we must make accommodations for one another. I know the word compromise is dirtier than the word cancer in our society, but without compromise, without some kind of ability to see compassionately where others are coming from, without the ability to dig down deep and find love in our souls, we have no, uh, no chance of building a truly authentic Christian community. And so we have to continually, over and over again, rehearse the standards and say, there's a boundary here. It's not a life or death, you'll burn in hell if you break it, boundary. But this is the boundary by which we have chosen to live. And if we don't acknowledge these boundaries, if we blow right through the stop signs and say, I don't care what you say, I'm going to do it my way. If we do this, we are destroying our own community. We are destroying our own city. We are destroying our own state. We are destroying our own country. If we're going to stand up and ask for a majority of the people to say, I support you, but I don't care about anyone else, we are doomed for destruction. Love must rule. And where love rules, according to the definition of Jesus, no one is excluded. No one. Somebody, maybe feeling a pang of regret, I don't know, but somebody, while he was right there next to that Samaritan village, some volunteer came out and said, you know what, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. They won't accept you because you're going to Jerusalem, but I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus, in a wonderful moment of irony, says to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, we have taken that and made a, a theological principle, a kind of an existential truth that we have preached over the years. Well, you know, isn't that something? Jesus was in the world, but not of the world. So we make bumper stickers that say that and 
poor son of man, he has nowhere to lay his head. But I do and you do, but not him. Friends, don't be too theological with that. He was standing outside of town where they had just refused to put him up for the night. He literally had nowhere to lay his head that night because of these Samaritan people. And so he wants to tell this man who's here to volunteer, you're going to have to get used to the idea that there's sacrifice involved. In fact, all three of these little encounters that come on the heels of his rejection by the Samaritans, all three of these people, two volunteers and one whom Jesus recruited as a potential recruit, they all have their reasons or they all have their excuses or they all have their moments, but they are meant to illustrate something Jesus had said just a little earlier in the chapter. Whoever wants to come after me must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. And again, we make this some grand sentimental idea. Well, something to strive for, isn't it? It's something to shoot for. Maybe someday I'll kind of get around to it. But Jesus is now illustrating. When I say you must take up your cross and follow me, I mean denying self and taking up the cross has real, physical, actual, in-the-world implications. It's going to be hard sometimes. We're meant to touch the lives of the people who can welcome us too. But we are always showing love. If we wipe the dust off our feet and continue on to the next town, we don't insult. We just keep going. So long as something is in front of us and we have the opportunity to change it or make it right, we work as passionately as we can to make it right. But when the dust settles and it doesn't come down our way, we are obligated in Christ to show love and to pray all night long, if necessary, for the people who do harm to us. Because once a thing is in the past, it's in the past. And whoever puts their hand to the plow, he said, and looks behind them, is not fit for the kingdom of God. It doesn't make them a bad person or an unreasonable person. It makes them a very human person. And there's complete rational logic behind their thoughts and deeds. It's just to say that the kingdom of God rises above our humanness. And the kingdom of God rises above our sinfulness. And the kingdom of God is set to a higher standard. How high? How high must the kingdom of God be set? Jesus asked a man, will you come with me? All right, let me first go bury my father, which is his way of saying there's an estate that I need to deal with. There's some, well, we we do a disservice to this poor man when we say that he was motivated by greed or he just couldn't come with Jesus. Because we do a disservice to him and to Luke, who is trying to tell us through this story that for the gospel to be radical, it means that we must prioritize Jesus above everything in our life. Now, it's easy for us to go to the stadium where they're going to preach this summer and say, if you want to leave your sins before Jesus, come down and give your sins to God, apologize for them, and leave your dark and dirty past in the past and come and be a citizen of the kingdom of God. But this is only part of the story. Jesus wants us not only to prioritize him above our dark moments, 
He was going to want us to prioritize him above our best moments. Above our homes. Above our families. Above our children. And there will be someone here today who is thinking to themselves right now, well, but what if Jesus, I mean, do you really say that if, that if Jesus said I had to give up my children, that I would have to do that? And I, my only answer is if you could ask that question, then you really don't know Jesus. Who would never ask you to do that? But he does say that whatever love you have for the people who are closest to you in your life, multiply that by a hundredfold. You begin to understand the love that God has for you. So place that love for God in a place of preeminence. Let it rise. Let it rise and transcend above everything else in this world. When we live in such a way that the love of Christ becomes the standard, the only standard by which we build our community life, when we engage in one another's uh, lives, not in a way that seeks to get some for me and disregard others, but when we, when we look at one another with the love of Christ in our eyes, we begin to build a community that is portable, that is flexible, that is missional, that is strong and sturdy and dependable. We begin to understand that the gospel of Jesus if Jesus is the one who is leading us through our travels, the gospel is unfettered by the cares and concerns of this world. It is undistracted by the questions of whether we're going to have something to eat or sleep tonight. And it is undeterred from making its way to its final place of mission and work. Jerusalem is the point, guys, not the Samaritan villages. That's where we stay if they'll have us. But Jerusalem is the point. A couple of weeks ago, I was praying through today's message, and I found myself just absentmindedly on my day off pedaling up a hill on my bike, and then I started down the other side. Now, things get interesting. In the same way that traveling together focuses us to be a community in cooperation with each other, going down a hill on a bicycle at 40 to 45 miles an hour will concentrate the mind very quickly, especially when the tire is only about that much touching the road. Right, Dan? And so you learn to ask other people, how do you do this without killing yourself? And the, the interesting thing is that the first rule of going around a mountain curve on a bicycle is this. You will hit whatever you're looking at. If you're worried about cracks in the road or potholes or some obstacle and you stare it down, you'll hit it. That's where you go. And so the trick is to look as far as you can around the corner, not at what you're rolling over right now. And the farther ahead you look, the easier it is to steer the bike. Instead of being tense and worried, I hope I don't hit that thing, your hands and arms relax, and you lean, and you find the balance, and everything takes care of itself. Could you preach the rest of this illustration yourself? To be unfettered and undistracted and undeterred is to keep God's mission in full sight, to keep it ahead of us at all times, and to stop looking to one side or the other or looking straight down at the thing that's right in front of us and making that little, little 
bump in the road, a mountain that's going to take us out. The body somehow has, the mind has a way of just kind of moving around these things if we're not fixated on them. And communities of faith have a way of doing this too. Healthy church communities move right around all the little moments of discord and whatever else if they have their eyes fixed on where we're going, the place where only love can exist, the place where no fire shall be called down, where the place where the world looks at our graciousness and mistakes it for weakness or mamby-pamby, but it isn't. It's just grace. It's God being patient with all of us until we get it. You're invited this summer to continue the journey in our summer travels with Jesus and to make yourself part of a community working headlong to place Christ above everything else and to do so in a way that is unfettered and undistracted and undeterred that Christ may be all in all, pontus and ponte. Amen.